Nazir, and this is the Afros and Rise podcast, the interview series that elevates the stories of Black women and women of color working in food and beverage, hospitality, and food media. Um, my name is Nanika Banda. I'm a chef, I'm a writer, I'm a culinary educator, and an entrepreneur. I um, currently have started a new project called Middle Passage, which is an uh, immersive dining experience celebrating the diaspora of African peoples through food and music and art and word. Um, before that, I had a restaurant in northern Minnesota called Martha's Daughter that um, won lots of accolades, but ultimately I decided to close, and so I'm currently in a journey of discovering where my place is um, outside of the restaurant, but still in the culinary world. I am 30 years old. I've been working in restaurants since I was 15, so I've been in the industry for about 22 years. I got my first job mostly because I was a teacher looking to make some money, um, but I ended up working for a small family-owned business in Madison, Wisconsin called North American Rotisserie, and it was a small um, black-owned family with a brother, or two brothers and a sister, and I got to work at the counter and do some prep, and that definitely really piqued my interest in culinary, and I've just been working my way up the ranks um, in culinary ever since. I am going to be selfish and ask you a bit more about your current project. Um, I was like, okay, well, like we, we can all go back and read some information and like talk about that in a minute. But I'm really, it was, I re, when it popped up on my uh, Instagram, I was like, I'm sorry, what's this? What's going on here? And I didn't connect, I didn't connect you to it initially. And so I tagged, I tagged you and I was like, Hey, um, uh, I want to interview about this. You're like, I've already interviewed you. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. I just didn't realize, I didn't realize that was you. So like, talk to me about like where that idea came came from and like what you're hoping to get done and like any kind of like yeah. anything you're starting you're going to start with and like ways that people can like participate yeah, get involved I mean, in the world or that kind of thing. I was so excited when I got to when I found out about you and your project because basically I had been living in northern Minnesota going to school um I had returned after like getting my associate's degree in culinary arts and I worked in California and I was working in your city and I ended up um doing an internship at Super Magazine where they gave me the opportunity to write along with testing recipes and so I got really interested in like the editorial side of food. So I went back to school and while I was a student I was going to a really small state school that didn't offer like a food studies program so I decided to kind of curate my own degree and within my interest in history and food I did a lot of study on like food ways of the African diaspora and got really interested in food history especially of like black food and um, you know, there were some important voices in there, like us could be Harris and Tony Tipton and um, Dr. Fredless Opie, who have done a lot of really intensive research on like the history of Black food, but there's still just like a really large gap in terms of the stories that are being told about our people and stories that are being recorded. And um, it was a really small town that was you know, 96% white, um, and I was starting to really feel the disconnect between like me and my identity as a black person, as a black culinarian. And so ultimately my decision to close my restaurant was partly because I felt like I needed more diversity in my life and I really needed to be connecting with people who looked like me, who had similar experiences to me or who we could share our experiences together. So when I closed my restaurant, I spent the past six months actually traveling the country. Um, I got hooked up with the traveling pop-up group in the field and they do farm to table dinners all across the world. And so I had the opportunity to work uh, dinners on about 60 different farms across the country and while it was really great to see people connecting to the farmers and the chefs in their community there was still like not the presence of people of color there and so I just saw that there was like this need to connect people to you know black farmers and once I started doing more research about black farmers in this country I started to learn that there's just been this ultimate decline which makes no real sense considering we created farming in this country and you know I just kind of want to create a space for 
black people and people of African descent to really celebrate our culture and to really kind of like reconnect to um, where we came from and like the beautiful things that we contributed to this country. Absolutely. I mean, that was kind of what I've noticed is is happening as not necessarily, I can't, the word trend is the wrong, is the wrong word for that. But that idea of like rediscovering food history overall. And I think as, as the, the cultures, culture as a whole starts to rediscover like where food comes from, they're starting to notice that there are a lot of black and brown faces in that history that they did not realize, which is typical of history in general at this point, especially in this country. And we just, you know, we just came through Black History Month and while it's amazing to be retelling the stories of, you know, Black culinarians who have paved the way for us, we start kind of telling the story of like the same six to ten people. And obviously there were like so many more people contributing and it's important that, you know, for us and for the future that we start to really like record what's going on and like, you know, give our voices space to be heard. Exactly. And it's... um well, I love. I wanted to circle back to a point you had made about like creating your own education or like your own your own program essentially for yourself because it's just not something that's being offered in a traditional uh, school or class environment at this point. Um, what did that What did that look like for you? Like, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting thing to share, especially with like young people who are coming up who don't know um, how to fill like fill the holes in their culinary education, especially with things that you know cuisine that they're interested in but don't get covered in a traditional culinary school environment so what was your approach to just essentially educating yourself and giving yourself um the foundations and tools that you needed uh to kind of pursue where you're going next well you know my approach to my degree was (laughs) i mean i guess i was fortunate because i had a culinary degree and i had a established myself as a chef and so I felt like I had the freedom to really just enjoy like education and learning and um I had a really great like mentor slash advisor who really encouraged me to dive deep and they also were very interested in food so I mean I guess one thing is to definitely find a mentor or an advisor or a program where there are people that are equally interested in food and really want to be able to like encourage you and maybe they're doing their own research I was able to find a professor that um was of Malaysian descent and he was doing his own research on Chinese American food and so that kind of inspired me to you know take my own path and start looking more into like my relationship with soul food and you know I actually my father's Malawian and my mother's black American and so I didn't actually grow up with like traditional black soul food traditions or foods and so for me kind of being able to eat out food black food culture and to connect with it and the history and to see that I have a lot more in common was really kind of like helped inspire me to keep going with the degree um and also just like I mean I think of anything in life believing in yourself and I mean I have kind of always heard no and no I've now kind of like transitioned into that meaning like I challenge you to prove me wrong like even in the beginning of my culinary degree I was told that I couldn't be a cook because I was a woman and that inspired me to you know prove that person wrong and so if someone says to me oh we don't offer this degree well why not? I mean, someone's doing it somewhere or someone should be doing it. And so I definitely have always kind of tried to have that. Um, Maya Angelou has a quote that says, I am human, therefore anything human I can do. And my mother told me that when I was discouraged from being a line cook and I've held on to that quote my whole life. And it's definitely helped me to stand up to those naysayers and to really keep pursuing the things that I believe in. It, you know, because I'm, I'm pro at like formal education. I'm also pro self-education. So I, that's why I was just, I kind of, that stuck out to me because I think a lot of times because there is um a lack of 
pursuing those particular other food ways outside of like traditional European ones or French ones. Um, you know, they, they essentially they set the standard as, you know, French cooking is the standard and it's kind of like, but really is it, uh, can we talk about some other places in the world that cook? I mean, it's like all cultures cook. So how is it that this one particular one has kind of emerged as the standard and it's, and it's good. I don't know if it's great, but it's good. I mean, it works. It can, it, it brings structure to life in a kitchen sometimes. Um, but I'm definitely more interested Well, it's also interesting to see, I mean, I have cooked with my Malawian aunts and, you know, there are a lot of like cooking techniques that they use that are very similar to the like techniques that I was learning in a fine dining kitchen, you know? And so um, I'm also, you know, working on projects kind of like trying to connect more with the Malawian African side of food. But in regards to formal education, it's, I, before I opened my restaurant, I was actually pursuing um, a doctoral program in studying African food raise. And so I like first had to find schools that offered ideally any sort of like African American food history, which is still like limited and not necessarily available at every university. And then to find people that are also interested in seeing food that expands beyond just like Southern soul food is still really challenging. And I guess that was like an area that I wanted to keep exploring. That's why I really wanted to study African foodways because they're like I said earlier, there's like people, scholars who are like paving the way and doing the research, but there's like so many different paths to go down. The same as European food, the same way we've studied, you know, the way that yeah, the French have influenced cultures all over the world. Like Africans have done the same. What has been in your in your current study, what has been the I guess the most surprising thing that you've discovered about like African food ways um, that you just didn't expect to, to uncover, didn't expect to find? You know, I grew up in the Northeast and like I said to African parents and so my like int- my knowledge of soul food was very, very limited and I had this idea of kind of like fried foods, lots of meat, um, for a long time in my 20s, I was a vegetarian, so I just felt like we're disconnected to soul food. And as I started researching more about how, like, you know, the enslaved Africans were farmers and they were bringing seeds over, and that there's so many, pretty much all of these vegetables that we consume today were brought by slaves. And, you know, just really acknowledging the influence that Africans had in cooking for white people and turning them onto the foods that now are like traditional American foods. When I was younger, the only real examples I saw of black women in the kitchen were, you know, as a servant. And so I didn't really understand that, you know, how much of an impact we really have had on like American food culture, like, you know, kale and potatoes and beans and cultivating rice. I mean, there's just so many things that we brought this country and figured out how to make industry. Um, that, I mean, there's, there's so much to be learned that I still don't even know that I want to keep learning about. And that's why I think sharing the story is really important, you know. Um, it's been a really, I've gotten a really great response from um, not just black farmers, but from like generational black farmers in the country and, you know, hearing their stories of land and hearing about, you know, grandparents who were sharecroppers and worked to be able to purchase land so that their children could have it. And these are like such important stories. And it, I mean, I have been passionate about um, like local farming, supporting organic farming, like Whole Foods, and to really be able to... I love the the name, and I wanted to, when I saw it pop up on Instagram, I definitely wanted to spend a little time, like, just talking with you about, like, where the name came from, because I love the name, I loved the name Martha's Daughter, that definitely was, um, like, it kind of spoke for itself almost, but, um, like, the, the middle passage, and, like, specifically, like, how you... Uh, how it's how it's spelled like how it's actually written um where what was the inspiration behind the just the name of that um i mean i've always been 
I think a little bit triggered by the term middle passage and what I means just for Black history. Um, but as I've gotten older and have, you know, had certain life experiences or challenges or tests, um, you know, as a human, as a Black person, as a woman, I realized that we all still are kind of going through this journey and we all have these points in our lives where perhaps they are maybe something similar to that same middle passage. And, you know, there are a lot of parts of history that are really horrible. And I think as Black people, we've done a really good job of taking ownership of those things and making them our own. And for me, I realized, you know, even I kind of searched out like, why are the people using the term middle passage? And it's still something that maybe it's taboo. Maybe we're like too scared to talk about, but it's like a very real part of our history, but it's something that, you know, we can be celebrating all the great things that have come from this like middle passage slash diaspora that happened as a result of slavery. We are in a time that is not easy for people of color right now, you know, and it's, um, and so I think that we all have these this journey that we're going on and to really be able to again like share in our experiences and you know i what i love about food and i actually was reading this in your blog that you were talking about this about like sharing food and like sitting at a table together i mean that's like what i love about cooking what i loved when i was doing pop-ups and supper clubs and what i love about my most recent position traveling is just seeing people who are strangers sit sit, sit down together share a meal and like leave as friends and like enjoy an experience together um and that's what i want to continue to do um as much as possible actually came as like not a planned part of my uh, life trajectory. As I said, I was applying to grad schools and I actually was doing food writing and I had my own um, monthly column uh, in the Duluth News Tribune where I was able to, you know, incorporate food history and recipes I enjoyed. Um, but because I was doing a pop-up and I developed this following, the restaurant just kind of fell into my lap and I decided to go with that. So, um, but ultimately it's kind of like... I've been in industry for so long that it kind of just continuously pulls me back and I'm trying to uh, give myself the freedom to step away from the traditional restaurant space and to, you know, pursue writing, which is something I'm really interested in. I've been, um, since the new year, sending out pitches and have some essays in the works with some national publications, which I'm really excited about. So just like pursuing food and other realms and trying to give myself the um, freedom to be comfortable in those areas that are a little bit less comfortable for me. So yes, doing more pop-ups this summer I'm planning. Um, I've already been connecting with a handful of farms across the country. So my hope is to set up six to 10 farm dinners um, on farms that are either owned or run by people of color, featuring chefs of color, winemakers, and you know being able to incorporate art and music into that as well. Um, and just really, I mean, like I said, when I reached out to you this summer, it's about, I'm really interested in like community, creating a community or finding that community of folks um, like me. And so that's really my mission right now in life. Oh, awesome. And I, and I completely get the, the pivot. Like I was working in like actively working in restaurants, like, you know, on a line and, um, and other like active like actively cooking uh in a lot of positions and then in the last couple of years um like just physically my my feet were like hey we're ready to not do this anymore <laughs> so you know it's um so exactly, exactly i was like oh i can't do that anymore so it was really it i i feel you i was like how am i doing this like i don't i love what i do i love i love this i love the food space like how can i continue to work in it and not you know end up um in the band somewhere or under the bed or under the bed right. for that matter um so that yeah definitely that pivot into like food writing and, and education and stuff just feels definitely like a natural evolution you know that kind of position of like once you've been in it for uh a number of years now it's time to like kind of disseminate that information that you've learned and attained and then of course chase your own um growing curiosities and you know to see what you don't know and and um 
and figure out what else there is to know because of course and you know anyone who's worked in a restaurant understands that your life really isn't your own for most of that time you spend obscene amounts of hours in a building with the same people every single day and you you know your life just kind of ticks away and so when you do get some freedom you kind of go i want to do all the things that i had no time to do before and a lot it has it has backlogged quite a bit um so like at this point like you're um is there any place where we can uh dig into some of your writing is there like a blog we can all put some eyes on because i would love to um to definitely like read whatever whatever you want yeah, to put out sure. there for yeah, sure I, um, <laughs> I mean in that same vein I ended up starting and working for a friend in her restaurant that they just opened in Los Angeles with has like a month and a half and then I just had to give myself like a on the wrist to remind myself this is what I'm supposed to be doing I'm supposed to be writing and doing other things so I'm um, actually heading to the desert to start doing some real intensive writing um, and to really put the project of Middle Passage out there so right now I would say like following on social media so following Middle Passage MID DLE passage um, on Instagram and then also following Martha's daughter. There's like two places where I'm going to be doing a lot more food history writing um, and blogging. Uh, and then I've been working on some pop-ups as well, like collaborations. And I'm definitely looking to collaborate with as many other folks as possible who want to reach out. Okay, awesome. Um, the in your in your study uh, at this point, are there any resources like books and things like that that you recommend that people just might not be reading that are on that are not necessarily on the radar right now? Because there's a lot of like tremendous work being done by a lot of fantastic writers and historians, and um, you know, and there's older there's some older work as well that people have rediscovered. But is there has there any has there been anything that's just been particularly um, influencing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess these three folks I would say are definitely more on the side. The presence on social media is as out there you know so i think folks not be like as aware but i would say that they're definitely um the like four leaders of the african foodways like discussion in terms of like the academic setting and so that would be like dr frederick douglas opie opie um dr jessica b harris and tony tipton martin are like three folks who especially when i was doing my research their names just came up over and over and over again as the people who are kind of like the authorities of african foodways um and i know tony tipton has recently come out with a new book jubilee that is top diving really deep into um black history in terms of food i believe she's on a book tour right now possibly but those people said i would say have really inspired me Yeah. In your, in your, and I kind of touched on this uh, question a little bit with uh, the folks at Black Black Food folks. Um, In your rediscovery and discovery of 
the of the past and of history. Where do you um, where do you see the future of Black food going? I think we because we it's out of it's it's a strange thing to be a Black person, especially in the United States, because we have to be so focused on the past because it hasn't resolved itself yet, and a lot of it has found its way into the future and into the present. Um, so it's you know it's it's hard you know we don't get the luxury of future casting for ourselves. We don't get to look ahead and go, this is what it looks like to work in, as, a, as a, a black person in tech. And this is what it looks like to work as a black person in food. So we don't get, we don't get spaced often to, to like really look at the future and go, this is what we want. This is where we're headed. Um, so with, with you having worked in um, a restaurant space recently, as well as like studying, you know, the, the work and food of, of our past, what do you, how do you see the future looking for, for black food and black food ways? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely that we're not really given a lot of space to expand further. I mean, I had a regular in my restaurant, Bless His Soul, but every time he came in, he would talk to me about boiled peanuts. And I was just like, I've never even really had boiled peanuts. Like, I understand that it's like a traditional Southern food, but it's not like part of who I am. And it was clear to me that these people like wanted me to be telling like some sort of a story. And that has really been, you know, the kind of journey that I've been on in terms of like understanding that looking to the past is not necessarily a bad thing and you know I think connecting with it even deeper will help us to really identify what is black food and it doesn't have to be this kind of um, you know direct relation to the Jim Crow South and to slavery it can have like all of these different avenues in which it expands you know like you and I have now we've worked in kitchens that do food that isn't just black food and you know I've had a hard time being able to tell people that my style of food maybe isn't just a certain type of way and sorry I'm going like a long tangent but I think that <laughs> um, I mean it's been really it's just been really great to see how other black culinarians are um like the honeysuckle pop-up like are really kind of like connecting back to history and I think you know as I was saying in terms of like the triggering nature of middle passage or even you know for myself living in predominantly white spaces where like I had to be extra conscious of my blackness that it's almost like first we have to get super black so that we can kind of move forward and create like a new space for ourselves you know and like you said I think there's like a lot of reconciling that has to happen and I think a lot of it has to just do with like letting our voices be heard and putting them out there and not letting people not letting them be quieted down and not being told that like we have to fit into the certain space but really like creating that space for ourselves This is true. And it's funny because like after my sister works in um, theater and I have some other friends who work in other industries and this idea of having to be like 200% black at the top in order to just to be allowed to be a regular person at some point where you can strike a balance. It's like, why do I have to be like ultra black in order for you to be okay with what I'm doing right now? Like, is it, um, you know, like if I don't fry chicken in my restaurant, like, hello, uh, that doesn't reduce like... But I'm not trying to be black. I am. So no matter what happens and what I produce out of this kitchen, I'm still a black chef producing food from a, a, a black led kitchen. Like I don't, I think that's, I've recently read like the, the, the challenges behind, um, 
the the, what's the, the brand honeypot from target and um the advertisement for that and then recently there's a really cool um a phone app smartphone app called eat okra which essentially was started by a couple in new york that helps people find black owned uh, food businesses across the country and so they just they're ramping up a lot of their marketing and so they're you know the word is spreading and because the app is beautiful and i just think it's necessary you can as a black owned food business can get on there register your business so that when people are in a city or in an area they can find you and so uh, they were recently getting yeah exactly and so it's a really beautiful app i i've been like anytime i can tell somebody about it i'm like just download the app if you want to support black businesses like that you have to find us first and that this it's a great way to find them but um like between the two like they both recently have had some really interesting pushback because of that idea of well if you know if, if we as non-black people were to promote our businesses as the way you guys are doing it then we would consider racist and it's just still like wrestling with this idea that yeah we want you to be black people but we just we still don't want you to exist though it's like it's like, <laughs> like they want the best of both worlds <laughs> very specific way exactly there's like this there's got to be a very specific narrative about it so it's like okay so would you you know would you free, go to a, a black owned business if you knew they were black owned most people are like well i don't care i'm like but but think about that like would you really think about how you treat other cultures as well you make assumptions about a lot of different cultures and a, about a lot of a lot of their businesses like the assumption of Asian Asian restaurants serving you know domesticated animals and um, uh, you know like stuff like that and like you know Mexican tacos not having like real real meat in the like just foolishness essentially but it's like it but so if people don't you know if the, if, the, if us if these cultures don't push back including ourselves and like re-educate and correct these like these issues what's the expectation for me I'm just like so we are going to allow you to continue to think that we exist in this way or that we're not like why have a because I'm always like why have an issue with it to begin with like so what someone's saying like it's a black owned business because the default isn't so we have to now make a distinction I'm like if we were part of the general narrative no we wouldn't be sitting out here trying to make a distinction <laughs> but we have we have to <laughs> <laughs> and the real issue is and that's something that i've kind of came to realization living where i was for the past five years is you know there comes a point where my problems aren't the same as other people's problems and my issues aren't the same as others and you know i took a lot of responsibility on i was with maybe two black people who owned a business in a city of eighty-nine thousand people and so there i felt like a lot of pressure to you know be a upstanding black citizen and be an example for folks because i have people where i lived you know telling me that the only people black people that they had ever seen were on television when I first moved up there. You know? And so to have know that like how I behave in front of these folks really is a representation of like a whole culture. Um, at one point in my life, on that responsibility. And then, you know, especially after Trump got elected and just kind of seeing people kind of be outright, you know, bigoted, it kind of made me really understand that, you know, our struggle is still very real and we really if we are taking care of ourselves no one else is going to do it for us and that's you know really been the catalyst for me and i have to almost even like recheck myself in that when i kind of find myself maybe even like apologizing to my folks or you know trying to make them feel more comfortable that that's like not my job and like my job is to make sure that there are other you know young black girls that feel that they can like have a voice and that they can 
you know, as cliche as it sounds, being everyone to be, because when I was younger, I didn't see black women as chefs. I didn't occur, it didn't occur to me that I could be a chef. I was just someone that liked cooking and just kind of fell into it organically, but it was never, I didn't see anyone that looked like me so I could say, like, I want to aspire to be like them. And to me, it's really important now. I mean, you know, it's like become this cliche term almost about representation, but it's like so important and it's important for the people in our community, whether they're young or old, you know, that we have, we can see a version of ourselves in someone else. It's true, and it's it's funny to me that people who, people who aren't challenged with this um, particular issue are like I don't like it, they don't they would not understand it. It's like you're represented everywhere. You show up in every space as the default, and so to to, for, to have to constantly concern you know concern yourself with like okay how are we represented? How are we showing up? Like that conversation is hard to have with people who won't ever have that experience. Um, Unless they go to a foreign country and they're the only person like themselves. And even in that, you know, because they don't live there, it's a really different attitude. It's like, well, I'm only visiting. And so even, you know, in those spaces, it can be a bit of a um, kind of an ego trip. Well, yes, I'm the only one that looks like me. And so, you know, it's this great thing because you're not being, you know, abused or dehumanized for it. You're being, you know, people are curious and that. Exactly. You know, and people are curious and that's about as far as it goes. And so when people are like, well, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm like, well, you don't have to, you don't live in experience. It's like trying to, you know, explain pregnancy and labor and delivery to a man. It's just like, well, you don't have the biologically, you don't, you don't have the parts for this particular, um, this particular job. And so it's hard to explain it to you where you can actually understand the experience like you would if you were experiencing it firsthand. And so, you know, at this point when you're like, okay, we, you know, to ramp up the activity at this point, to put ourselves in positions, because again, like you said, it's not our jobs now to like make people comfortable with the fact that I'm here. We are here. So it's, it's up to you now to just accept it or reject it, but I'm not going anywhere. So I'm going to, you know, we're going to put ourselves where we need to be. So other people who look like us can, can understand that they're invited. I think that's what people don't understand about inclusion um and representation it's about you having knowing that there's an invitation for you because you know you don't want to go where you're not wanted but if you see someone like yourself in in a place you kind of go oh okay we're invited to be in that space so i can at least imagine myself there or pursue work um in that area so but yeah see this is why i mean by you can go on a tangent real easy up and around here so um now the 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 theme of the season for me was like growth and wellness. And I, you know, thinking about like your journey at this point, at least publicly, like what people have read um, and things like that. And of course, like helping them help understanding your story, especially like closing the restaurant and things like that. And then like where you are now, what you, you know, what your intentions were in the beginning um, at all. Like I, this was not the thing I had on my life plan in my on my life map to begin with. And, um, you know, it just is an opportunity that presented itself that I took. Um, I've seen a lot of like just restaurant closures and, and that can be for a number of things, economy and a couple of other things. And my question for you is like, how did you take care of yourself? in that transition in that space because you know for me i'm like even if it wasn't my intent it wasn't my intention to do something i want to do something well and i want to succeed at it for as long as i choose to do it 
And so when I see like, okay, this isn't working the way I wanted to, and then having to just come to a place where I have to make a decision for myself, like, Hey, I'm going to let this go so I can do and pursue something else. It's still letting go of something. And so what does, how did you, yeah. Like how did you take care of yourself in the process, in the transition and like to, to like guard your head and your heart and everything else, just so you were like healthy coming out on the other side. So you could like really definitely like just go forward. Um, the transition of closing the restaurant actually was super like rushed and kind of chaotic for me. And so I didn't totally have a real plan. I knew that I wanted to go closer to my family and they all live in on the East Coast of Massachusetts. So that was like the first step was, you know, I packed up my apartment and my cat and I drove across country and we went and stayed with my mom and my sister and my grandmother a little while. And ultimately it was like serendipity that um, had my paths crossed with outstanding in the field because to be honest, I was in a headspace where I felt like I was a failure and that to have made the decision to close a restaurant, you know, was me like letting people down, letting myself down. And I was having a lot of difficulty sitting with that. And so I was able to join this group of people that are really passionate about food, about food systems, um, and to be able to like be going to so many different farms across the country. And with every different dinner, there was a new chef that I was meeting that um, either was running a restaurant. I met a lot of chefs that were closing restaurants. I met a lot of like female chefs that were also kind of, you know, in a transition of, oh, you know, I, was, I thought I wanted to open a restaurant. I thought I wanted to be an executive chef. And then I was burnt out and then I hated my life. And so then I closed it and now I'm trying to figure it out. And it was really, again, like when you're finding your team, finding your tribe, it made it feel so much better for me. It made it feel okay. It made like the closing feel okay. And I was able to just really find a community of folks who have had all similar experiences. So um, I... I know actually how I would be in terms of headspace had I not had that chance to really kind of be on the road and really like see the country. Um, it was a total blessing. For, it's funny because we talk we talk so much about um, like kind of pursuing those particular types of, of aspirations, you know, opening a restaurant or, you know, starting something big in this space. And it's very, you know, very few of us get a chance or space to talk about like when something doesn't work out well. And I think that's something that's necessary for, you know, the gen- the new, the future generations of people coming up into the space is that you have to understand like when to let something go, how to process that, like surrounding yourself with people who like get you and who understand where you're at and who can give you space and time. Go ahead. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> I kind of forgot about this. The the weekend it was like right after I had announced that I was closing the restaurant was the National Women's Chef and Restaurant Tours Conference, and um, that year and the year before they've been hosted in Minneapolis. The year before I'd actually been invited to like cook food for the conference, and that was my first introduction to WCRA. And from the first year, and then showing up there after closing a restaurant, and there were panels with esteemed restaurant female restaurateurs who had had so much experiences, and you know still have other restaurants that are like succeeding or they've moved on and done other things and going to that conference I, mean, I was kind of a mess I was kind of like crying or like triggered almost at every like panel that I went to but it was also really comforting to be surrounded by all these folks that um were in the same journey as me and by folks I mean like women um and chefs and restaurateurs and so I would definitely encourage anyone um, that's a female identifying to sign up for the WCRA I know they have like scholarships if you can't afford to be a member even when I was um closing a restaurant we would have chapter meetings we'd have little meetups and I would go to those and it definitely helps remind myself that there are other people that are going through the same things that I'm going through. Let's try that again, phone. Um, Thank you, because I just, it's it's hard to explain to people, especially if they don't work in, like, this particular industry, like, what that's like. Uh, 
because it's like oh it's you know like you're gonna you're gonna get in you're gonna start working and you might get fired off the line one day you might you know you might get sent home in the middle of dinner service like it happens and I think especially because as black women there's such little representation of us in a lot of kitchens um I mean it's 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 gotten better marginally but for the most part it's just like you know we it, working in a restaurant is already hard. I was hoping like it's already like one of the most like demanding and grueling jobs you'll ever have. And so if we continue on with the, the understanding that you know black women have to work three times harder than everybody else, I don't know how much harder you can work in a restaurant. <laughs> so you know without it taking without it like completely putting you in the, in the ground, I don't know how much harder you can make that you know what you can do there. And so you know it's like you know, for cooks that are coming up and for like young women and, you know, just remember like you will just do the work because things are going to happen. And like, don't expect like this journey to be a a linear. It's going to, it's going to change and it's going to look different. And, um, you know, I had one, I had a, a, a girl who was an intern of mine in Philadelphia and she wasn't sure, you know, her, her concern was that she didn't fit into restaurant culture. And so she had spent the summer working in the kitchen I was um, managing at that time. And by the time we left, she was like, thank you for, you know, being so generous because I love, I want to work in food, but I don't know if I work, I don't, I don't know if I want to work in a restaurant. And so, you know, we had a really long conversation about other opportunities to work in culinary um that aren't you know that like you said the traditional you know the traditional trajectory that we put people on all the time it's like okay become a line cook work your way up you know become a sous become an executive chef and then you kind of keep moving but i'm like there's other places you can go with a culinary education there are other spaces that need you um with a culinary education and so you know it's just like go easy on yourself when you find that you don't necessarily fit into the um the restaurant mold because it's not for everybody and um um, I think the more- yeah, it's hard. and it's hard to sit with. I mean, when I the last restaurant I worked for, the my restaurant was in New York City. It was WD Fifty, and I was I mean, it was a Michelin star kitchen. I was crying myself to sleep every night and waking up crying and just like felt really anxious all day long every day. And eventually, you know, okay, I was like, this is crazy. Like I've worked hard towards this. I'm like here I am. I'm like at the top. I'm like working with all the country's top chefs. Like I should be happy. I should like this. And it was really hard for me to accept. Like maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this isn't. You know, and, and actually, I had I, part of me felt like maybe I just I'm not supposed to work in like the industry, and maybe I should walk away. And it definitely was about finding those right spaces. You know, when I had the opportunity to create a space, like how to create a space that's healthy for people to feel like you know they can continue to nurture passion and not die. You know, also while doing it, um, it was figure out how to find that balance in restaurants. You know, and I think that's kind of the future of restaurants is definitely shifting in that way because. I mean, enough. Fortunately, the millennials are coming out and saying, like, I don't want to work this much all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just not, I just, it, I don't think it's healthy. I just honestly, like, looking at the balance mm-hmm. of, like, what we do, like, what we do when you stand back, when you sit back as a person who's, like, grown up in it and you kind of step back and look at it again, you're just like, this is ridiculous. Like, who else is doing this like this? And like, to what end to like burn yourself out to like, you know, to, to die young or to end up with some type of weird substance abuse problem or like, you know, like the things people have done in order to keep the pace. And you're like, is this all really worth it? Like, is this is what we're doing, giving us what we want at the end? And is that like, is, are you just trying to put up a plate of food or are you trying to like live this life that's like fulfilling and, um, 
and and useful to other people at this point. Like I understand serving a plate food. That's what really what the passage is about. You know, it's like enough. I mean, yeah, we don't need to be burning ourselves out just to feed wealthy people food. If I'm going to burn myself out over something, I want to have something to be able to use my passions and talents for something that's going to make. You know, I mean, not even a difference in other people's lives, but it's like benefiting myself as well because it's giving a new purpose. You know, right? There's got to be some. There's got to be some fulfillment here. I can't get to the end, and like, because I don't. You know, it's funny, like to watch, um, like the more your more notable chefs with more notoriety kind of step out of kitchens and get into other spaces because it's like they want to tell more stories, they want to be able to spend more time, you know, their friends and their family, and actually having a life, and simultaneously we're still you know the messaging about working in the industry is still like work yourself until you're sick or anxious or crazy because that's the only way to get anywhere and i'm like that's just so untrue and you know it's it's so like absolutely untrue that that's what you need to do to like be important or to have a voice in the industry and i think it's just a matter of like shifting the narrative and like you said thankfully i think we are sitting seeing these little small like nominal shifts um which essentially are it's a value shift first and then you know and a shift of behavior but i like the attitudes i think for so long like our attitude the attitudes in restaurants and working in restaurants have influenced our attitudes towards food overall as a culture and i think as we shift away from this idea that food is commerce and back into food is nourishment that we'll see some change in um, restaurants and again that's i think it's essential for for black folks to get into the, the industry because we we kind of naturally bring that energy with us like hey we're looking for each other because we want to take care of one another and if you come into this come into one of our, our food spaces that's what you're going to get that's the vibe you're going to get and i think the more um the more of us that show up in the industry the more balance we can probably we will bring to you know just to those attitudes towards how food is produced and how food is served so um so yeah yeah that's such a good point yeah the more we show up the more people just get used to it and you're like sorry this is how it's gonna right. go now. they're like oh this is a gym it's you know for me i'm like you know what's gonna work and you're not gonna work um it's not you're, you're still going to work hard but you're not out here like trying to I, I just still don't understand what people are trying to prove working that like working that crazy i remember like new york i think when i started working in new york that was my first line job and i worked at a restaurant called the fat radish in manhattan and i lo- i lost i started in august and i by the time christmas came around i, I swear i lost like 40 some odd pounds Oh, same. Yeah, I called it my WD fifty diet. I lost like twenty five pounds. Just like, like couldn't eat. I just like, what are you doing? I, and I didn't realize. And what was crazy was I didn't even notice I had dropped that much weight. What was happening was I, I, I was coming. I was going to work. I got off the train from Brooklyn. I was coming up the stairs to get to the street level again, and I kept. I had to keep holding my pants up, and I was like, "What are what's?" And I thought it was the pants. I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that my pants were too big at that point but i thought something had like a zipper had broken or something so i immediately go into like the closest store and start trying pants on and by the time i got around to the like the size like fours and those suckers fit i was like oh i need to go see a doctor like immediately thought i was sick (laughs) i was like oh shoot how did you lose this much weight so i like bought the pants got to work and then my family when i finally saw them again everyone was like hey you're doing all right um 
looking real slim showing <laughs> you sick and I was like no I didn't even realize I had lost that much weight and I just like now you know it's been oh, oh more than a decade from that point and I'm just like what were you doing like what were you what right. were you ch- and we're working on food all day and we're you and don't eat it's true i'm just like i remember my chef used to stop and be like tiff have you eaten today and i'm like i think so and you don't even think about it it's just it's really it's really just a dangerous way to live in general and it's just yeah, we're like not eating sitting down or you know just kind of like, it's almost like part of who i am now to stand up and eat <laughs> i can sit at a table it's okay. oh my god and it's, it is it creates these terrible life habits and you're just like i have got to break myself of this habit of like thinking that i only have 20 minutes to sit down and eat or you know if your brain just won't pause and go okay you can take care of yourself for the next 30 minutes it's okay um so yeah but um oh and so in these last few moments i've been asking everybody um and the answers have been pretty pretty incredible um to you know if you had an opportunity to create one of your very last meals on this side of life um what would you absolutely have to have like what would have to be on the table um and now that other people have answered it this way and then how would you want it served would you want it served in uh courses or would you want everything on the table at one time Wow. So I'm sorry. Am I eating this or am I serving this dish? <laughs> you are eating it for sure. And then how would you want it served to you? Would you want it served in like in, in courses or would you want it served oh, all okay. at one time? Um, yeah. So my, I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, but it's my pleasure in life is um, going out for like rustic Italian food. And um, I definitely love eating in courses. And so I would definitely want some sort of like burrata cheese with tomatoes to start. Um, and then probably like four different types of pasta, like something stuffed, like a anelodi, something like a popper deli, maybe with a lamb ragu, for sure a bolognese. Um, I love Alfredo. I... Um, always appreciate something chocolatey at the end i love wine throughout so yeah i would say like a nice gluttonous meal of like heavy pasta and wine and chocolate. <laughs> yes that's all as soon as you said cheese i'm like uh-huh yep cheese yep yeah. we gonna need cheese to start cheese throughout thank you very much oh my goodness oh. it's it, you know, and each every time i ask the question the answers are just so they're so interesting because it just gives you a small window into something like into someone's like comfort food space and like what bring, makes them feel like at home and secure and like you know if you're eating a last meal you want to just have a moment and just go ah oh, okay it's just you know what i mean yeah and the, you know girl that I'm like you said my last meal, but it's like that's this meal that I like it's order true. all the time at this restaurant. I understand myself, that you know. You're like it's okay. You're I'll fine. Take you're fine. Um, so one just to yeah. just while I have the, like these last few moments with you, just um, just remind everybody of the uh, the Instagram pages, and then um, if, uh, if if you have a Twitter handle or something like that, that throw that out there too, so we can all just keep up with what you're doing, and when you start releasing some some work, that we can all read and uh, get our hands on awesome yeah so the blog is martha's daughter that's at martha's daughter on instagram and then for the black farm dinners that's at middle passage it's m-i-d dot d-l-e-p-a-s-s-a-g on twitter i am at nanika mary 
So every now and then I post on Twitter. I'm not very good about it. Man, Twitter is hard. I'm sorry. Twitter is hard. I thought all the other ones would be, but Twitter is a challenge. You're just like, I don't, I don't, I, I'm either, I either don't want to say anything to you about something or I have a tangent. I don't have the in between. I don't do 160 right. characters. I'm sorry. Right. And then how do I be yeah, how can we be clever? Apparently that platform is not for me yet. I don't have the discipline, so it's fine. Um, but thank you. But thank you so much for hopping on. I know that you are current. Thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for what you're doing. I think it's so important. Um, like I said, when I saw the blog, it like spoke to me and made me feel like, oh my gosh, there's someone doing this already. We have like a community going, people's voices are being heard. I think it's really great. Thank you so much. I know I'm like, every time I get, I sit down and like try to edit a, uh, an episode. Thank you for listening to this week's interview. We hope you enjoyed it. With the thousands of podcasts out there, we are honored that you've chosen to listen to ours. Be sure to catch up on all of season one, then come back every week for new episodes. Visit the Afros and Knives website to get connected to our social media, to buy merch, and to become a patron of the show. Afros and Knives is a listener-supported podcast, and funding is provided by our Patreon members. Be sure to download and subscribe to the show, and we'll talk to you next week.